Welcome to the podcast for Centerpoint Church. Located in the heart of Concord, New Hampshire, Centerpoint is all about living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus. The message today is a part of that journey, and we are glad to have you join us. What a great way to begin the Advent season, is that not? Worshiping our Lord. Right, we anticipate him. This is a, a season of anticipation. It's a season of expectation, of hopefulness, right? And uh, we take this journey together leading up to our celebration and, uh, and the celebration that the Lord has come. Along the way, we want to mark this journey out with some special moments. Uh, Each week, we'll have somebody do a reading for us and light a candle that marks for us another stage of this journey of expectation. Today, Dean and Cheryl Eggert, who've been a part of our family for a very long time, uh, will share with us today. Thank you. Our first Advent Sunday reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, not was, not was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, 
I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The candle we light today represents our waiting for the one who will overcome evil by his own sacrifice. Thank you, Dean and Cheryl. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you today in awe at this gift that you have given. It really is beyond words. Yet words are what we have to express our gratitude to you. Words are what you have used to reveal yourself to us. And so today, as we look at your word, uh, reveal yourself. Show us who you are. Would you, Father, open our eyes to see we so often are blind to. We don't naturally see you. But open our eyes. Would you open our ears by the power of your spirit so that we can hear what we normally don't hear? And would you, God, by your grace and the power of your spirit, soften our hearts so that, that, that our souls would be pliable in your care. We want to be good soil that receives the seed of your word today and bears fruit in our lives and beyond. We give ourselves to you in hopeful expectation. And we do so in the name of Jesus, whom we trust. Amen. Amen. As we embark on our journey today, we're going to go back to the beginning, the very beginning, and start turning your Bibles. Uh, the text we're going to look at specifically is going to be in Genesis chapter 3. Um, let's make sure we set the stage well for what's going on by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3. It's a story that you're probably familiar with. Even if you haven't been around church world very long, you probably know this one, right? In the beginning, God. Yeah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the whole gig starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has always been, and simply by his desire and by his power, he spoke everything that is into existence. Pretty remarkable. Before he did that, nothing existed. After he did that, everything that exists, exists, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And one of the things we'll notice uh, if, as we pay attention to that beginning of Genesis, um, it says that God's spirit hovered over the deep. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. It's not insignificant at all. And then we see in God's creation, he called out order and specifics in the shape that creation would take. The high point of that creation was humanity. We see this, and, and we know it's a high point because of the details that Scripture gives us of what happened. We see that God formed the man out of the dust of the ground of creation, right? And then God breathed his spirit into him, and he became a living being. And there's something very significant in that. It's the coming together of heaven and earth in man. 
And yet man was unable to, by himself, fulfill his created commission to subdue the earth and rule over it, to multiply. It was impossible for him to do that. He, he needed somebody to complete him, to rescue him from his state of inability. And God saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so he created that completer for him. And out of the side of man came woman. And the two of them together, commissioned by God, commissioned as he placed them uh, in a garden. Out of all creation, there was a, a special place in this place where rivers came together, the Garden of Eden. It was a place of abundance. It was a place of flourishing. It was a, a place where there was no want. And God put them there on purpose. They didn't sneak in. They didn't make it themselves. It was God's doing. He placed them there out of his benevolence, out of his love, out of his abundance and generosity. He placed them in the garden. He said, look around. All of this is yours. All of it. All of it's yours to tend to, to eat for nourishment. It's all yours. But there's one tree that you need to stay away from. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may eat from everything except this one tree. For when you eat of this tree, God said, you will surely die. Death will come upon you. They didn't even know what death was at that point, really. There hadn't been death up until that point. And everything seemed to be going along fine. What a beautiful picture of how the world began at God's design, his order, and his love. And then we get to chapter three. We don't get very far into this thing at all. You'd think we could at least have one good book out of this whole thing in Eden, but no, we, we don't get very far at all. We get to chapter three. And notice how chapter three begins. We're not gonna read all of chapter three, but look at how it begins. Out of all this abundance, all this garden, all this fortune. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Just that simple little phrase clues us in. Something is happening here. Pay attention. You don't want to miss this. Now the serpent was more crafty than all of the other wild animals that the Lord had made. Oh, he was crafty. He is cunning. He doesn't come to bludgeon the man and the woman into submission. He just coaxes. He woos. But oh, the snare closes tight. See, he spoke to the place of desire and the man and the woman. And he began to plant seeds of doubt. Doubt of God's goodness. Doubt of God's ability. Doubt of God's wisdom. Did, did he really say to you? And it just shaves the truth just a little bit. Little seeds of doubt. You see, they understood that they had a commission to rule and to reign over creation, to take what had been given in Eden and to spread it throughout, to multiply and exercise dominion over all the earth. They knew their commission that they had been given by God. This is what they were made for. And here, if they could simply exercise dominion with the knowledge of good and evil, then they could do what they were made for. 
If only they had the knowledge of good and evil, then they could do the very thing they were created to do. Perhaps God would even be pleased with them for them to have it for themselves instead of having to wait for God to explain the difference between good and evil. Instead of having to wait for God to explain everything that they were to do. Maybe if they just took it for themselves, they would please God and be able to accomplish their very purpose in existence. And so this temptation grew into desire and it fanned its flame into sin and rebellion in the simple act of reaching and taking and eating. The serpent was more crafty than all the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. And in that very moment, everything changed. Their eyes were opened. They saw that they were naked. They were shamed. They hid themselves. They tried to, to figure out how to clothe themselves with the branches of the shrubs. And they hid. And the Lord came walking in the cool of the day. It gives the impression that this was a regular thing. They walked with God in this place of abundance. And here God came in his first words. Listen to his words. Where are you? It, it was the call of relationship. It wasn't because God didn't actually know where they were. He hadn't lost them on Find My on his Apple Watch and calling out to them in mystery. He knew precisely where they were. He knew precisely what they had done. And yet he calls out, where are you? You should be with me, is what he was saying. But you're not, where are you? They said, we hid. Well, why did you hide? Because we're ashamed. Why are you ashamed? because we did the very thing you told us not to do. And so we find ourselves where God has to explain to them what death is. And so we find, and I want to look at this. He, he speaks to the man, he speaks to the woman, but we're going to zero in today on what he speaks to the serpent. Because in this speaking to the serpent, we also find this incredible promise that God makes. And so that's where we want to look. Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to look at verses 14 and 15. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Let's read together. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. This is this picture of shame and disgust. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Those are the verses we want to zero in on. Did you hear the promise in there? Did you hear the thing that God was in this moment of catastrophic failure? God was speaking promise. And he was speaking of one who would come. Speaking of one who would come, who would untangle the cords that had just been wrapped around humanity's neck. One of the first stops that we need to make here is we need to believe that evil exists. Don't we sometimes wrestle with that? I mean, we might look at some world events and there are some leaders throughout history who have been just absolutely horrific. 
And in some of those instances, we can convince ourselves that evil exists and bad people. But sometimes we wrestle with this notion of evil beyond that. I mean, come on, everybody's just doing their best. And the closer our assessment moves into us, the further evil seems to move away from us. And so we certainly wouldn't put us, me, in a category of evil. But evil exists. And even as the story dives into this, it, it begs some questions for us, doesn't it? We won't necessarily answer all of them today, but we're okay with questions. And the question that you've asked as you've looked at this, if God knew, why, why was the snake even there? Like, why did he even let him in? Like, if this was such a perfect place, how did evil even get to show up? How did the cunning, crafty, snaky thing even get in there? How, how does evil exist? And these are the questions that stir us because we feel the pain and the not rightness of evil. Evil exists. And this picture that we're given here at the beginning of Genesis, it, it draws us into its reality. See, when we go back to, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says his spirit uh, hovered, against, uh, hovered above the deep. Um, and it's this picture of uh, deep, chaotic waters that just ran roughshod. Like there was no organization to it. It was just these chaos waters that God hovered above. And then day by day, he calls out and creates order out of the chaos. Do you see that? He begins to push back the boundaries of the chaos waters. And one of the things, if we'll pay attention throughout scripture, chaos waters play a role in drawing us into the redemptive story of God. Uh, we see the waters churning and it's, it's a sign of chaos. There's violence and evil is present in those things. And yet God overcomes. So God is over the chaos waters, even in Genesis 1. And God contains the chaos as he brings order and meaning to creation. And all the time that he's put, putting up boundaries to the waters, to the chaos, and he's bringing order, chaos pushes against it. Have you ever been by the sea when it's angry? Oh, it's one of my favorite times to head to the ocean. And the sea just crashes against the walls. The sea just crashes against the rocks and the beach. It's furious. This is the picture that we're given here, that chaos crashes against the order that God brings to creation. And chaos pushes and roils against and uses violence to bring disorder to that which God has ordered. You're beginning to see this cosmic picture being developed here for us, that evil is real and it works in chaos. And humanity was created to join God in bringing order and flourishing and goodness to all of creation. It's this heaven and earth combination. Humanity was designed to rule and reign with God in bringing order and beauty and flourishing to all of creation. And chaos pushes. Chaos, in Genesis 3, takes the shape of a serpent. There's a couple thing, things that we get out of this. One, it's a reminder 
that the serpent, the snake, is not equal to God. Even the chaos waters were beneath him. God is over everything that is. And while chaos, while evil, while violence might exert itself with force that to us is clearly overwhelming, the beginning of the story reminds us that even evil is not on par with God. We do not live in a universe where God and evil coexist as equals. Even evil must submit to the all-powerful creator. That's a tinge of good news for us, is it not? But what the serpent does, what the chaos does, what the evil does, is it recruits humanity through temptation. It doesn't bludgeon him with a hammer, it doesn't come down heavy, it doesn't come up with the ridiculous, for the serpent was more crafty than all the other animals. And evil recruits humanity through temptation, through the temptation to accomplish our desires in chaos ways. So what are the chaos ways? The chaos ways are about taking. The chaos ways are about exerting. The chaos ways are about dominance. The chaos ways lead to violence, always leads to violence. And violence leads to death. Remember, the Lord said, when you disobey, you will know death. And chaos, evil, violence, and death entered the world. And we are continually recruited, <laughs> recruited to participate with him. And this is just not a story from thousands and thousands of years ago. This is a story that is written into our day, into you and me. You and I encounter the serpent that is more crafty than all of the other animals. And it woos us. It calls us in the temptation, in the temptation to grasp our desires, to fulfill our desires in chaos ways, to see what I desire, to know what I long for, and to grasp and take. And the act of grasping and taking is always a violent ask, uh, act. And so we desire um, safety, right? We desire safety and it creeps up and the serpent who is more crafty than all the others fans it into flame and soon we say, to have safety I must take and keep. To have pleasure or comfort I must take and keep. To have affirmation and accolades, I must take and keep. Do you begin to see how the serpent works? And we are his accomplices as we succumb to his wooing temptations. And the more we strive to break out, the tighter we get entangled by the snares. Evil consumes us. And now we become the creatures of chaos. We become ambassadors of evil by our taking and our keeping because we refuse to be patient and abiding for the Lord's provision. Instead of waiting for the Lord to provide safety, we take it. Instead of waiting for the Lord to um, provide affirmation and love, we take it. 
all the things. We were created to wait, to be patient, to receive from his abundant goodness, but instead we take. That is the chaos way. And this is how evil is alive and well in our world. We see, we take, and we keep. And yet that is not the place that we stay. Of our own accord, it absolutely is. We are tangled up. We cannot get out of it on our own. And so many characters in scripture are chaos characters. Get to Genesis 4. We meet two brothers, Cain and Abel. Supposed to be people that are making this whole thing right, bringing sacrifice to God. Abel's is, re is, is received by the Lord and Cain's is rejected. Cain succumbs to the chaos serpent in himself. And he takes his brother's life, violence that leads to death. Chaos, evil, violence, death. It's the chaos way, it's the serpent's way. And yet, right here in verse 15, the Lord speaks of another, of, of one who is yet to come, one that we are waiting for. He first describes it as offspring of the woman. It says that there will be an offspring of the woman. There will be enmity that you will be at odds with. You will clash with one of the offspring of the woman. And what is this telling us? This is telling us that the one who will come, who will ultimately defeat the belly crawling snake, will be human. It will be human. This is why the, the virgin birth is such an important doctrine for us to hold on to in our faith. It absolutely is mysterious for us, but it's so crucial and important. Look at what happened as God created the man of creation, breathed his breath in him, heaven and earth came together. In the birth of Messiah, Emmanuel, the virgin birth, we have of the woman's offspring of the woman, the Spirit of God coming together. Heaven and earth coming together. Jesus is even referred to as the new Adam. And so this, this tease that we get here from God is there is one who is coming, an offspring of the woman, who will have enmity with your offspring, with those who are the snaky way, with those who embrace the snaky way. There will be enemy, they will be enemies. There will be a human who will defeat this serpent. And we keep looking for the one who will be the snake crusher. We keep looking for the one of promise. And so even by the time we get to Adam and Eve having children, Cain and Abel, we wonder, could they be the ones, right? Offspring of the woman. That makes sense. It's one generation, offspring of the woman. Could they be the one? And Abel comes and brings an offering to the Lord. The Lord receives, that's righteousness. And then Cain comes and offers an offering before the Lord that the Lord rejects. We don't even know exactly why the Lord rejects it. He's not just being capricious or mean, but he knows the heart. He knows what's going on in Cain's spirit. And Cain rejects God by killing his brother. Was he the one? Oh, no, he's not the one. And then we're told that the earth is filled with violence, that chaos, evil, violence spread throughout the whole earth. Humans were supposed to spread goodness and beauty and love and flourishing through the earth. What did they spread instead? They spread chaos, evil, and violence throughout the whole earth. 
And so then Noah, a man of righteousness, he must be the one, right? He's the one we've been waiting for, a man of righteousness. And everything looks really good. There's the ark. There's the patience. He's obedient to God. He's faithful to God's directions. Finally, the waters recede. It's time for recreation. The waters of the flood are decreation. As the waters recede, it's time for new creation. Noah gets out of the boat and he plants a garden. A garden, does that sound familiar? Plants a garden, there's flourishing once again. Noah must be the one until he gets to grapes. And from the fruit of the garden, he gets drunk. He sees, he takes his own delight. Oh, he's not the one. And then we wait. Hundreds of years of captivity and Moses comes along. Moses must be the one, right? He's perfect. He's the perfect one. Like Egypt and Hebrew all together in this. He's our rescuer. He's our savior. He's the one. He's the one. What does he do? He advocates for the Hebrew people by killing an Egyptian who's hassling one of the Hebrew slaves. Oh, he's not the one. They get to the promised land. David must be the one. King David, a man after God's own heart. This must be the one. He's the one we've been waiting for until he sees and he desires and he takes and reaps violence on his people. Oh, this is the theme of the Hebrew scriptures. Is this the one? Is this the one? Oh, it's not the one. Is this the one? Is this the one? Oh, it's not the one. Is this the one? Is this the one? Oh, it's not the one. It's birthing in us as we read it. It's birthing in those who lived it. This ache, this agony. God, when will you send the one you promised? The offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the snake. When will he come? And so we wait for the one We wait for the one. We wait and we wait and we wait. And then the gospels introduce us to one, Jesus. Could he? Really? We thought many before, could he really be the one? Let's pay attention to a few things. Jesus has an encounter with the snaky one, doesn't he? It doesn't necessarily take the shape of a snake, but right after Jesus' baptism, the spirit, we're told, the spirit leads him out into the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of testing, a place of desolation, a place of death, of chaos, actually. And so the spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness where he is met by the tempter, by the devil, the evil one. Oh, the serpent was more crafty than all the other animals. And he approaches the hungry, fasting Jesus. Jesus knew what he was there to do. He had just received this affirmation of the Father. This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. Jesus knew that he had mission. He had purpose. And the tempter comes and dangles. You could fulfill that purpose, you know. You could do the thing. Cast yourself off this parapet and see the people run to you. Bow down to me and rule over everything you see. Accomplish what you were sent here to do. But every temptation, every opportunity, every confrontation with the snaky one, Jesus refuted. Where Adam failed, 
the new Adam stood firm. And then we're told that the devil left him until an opportune time. The offspring of the woman. Now what will happen when the offspring of the woman and the serpent meet? God said, go back to it. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head and, he, and you will strike his heel. Let's take a quick little look at these two, two movements here. The one who comes, this offspring of the woman, will strike the serpent's head. This strike the head. It speaks of a, a, a final and a fatal blow. Nothing temporary about it. It is final and it is fatal. And it is victory. So this offspring of the woman will strike you down with ultimate victory. Victory over Satan, victory over evil, victory over sin, and victory over death. Chaos and all that it encompasses will be, rest, will, will be overcome by the one. And those who have been entrapped by chaos, evil, sin, and death by our own willingness to be accomplices, shall be rescued and freed. Jesus overcomes this one because he never gave in. He never gave in, even to the point of his own death. And in dying, he paid the penalty of sin, freeing everyone who believes from sin and death through forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. And then Jesus takes his place through resurrection and ascension, takes his place to rule and reign over all of creation. This is victory. It is decisive, overwhelming force and victory. And so Jesus is this one. But this victory comes about in a most disturbing and unlikely way. We would imagine somebody who would come with such force, such might, that they would rain down chaos upon chaos and evil. But the pathway of victory is different. It's disturbing. It was absolutely disturbing to those who began to catch a glimpse of it. See, Jesus said this is the way it was going to go. If you go over to Matthew chapter 16, this whole notion of um, the serpent striking the heel of the offspring of the woman. Matthew chapter 16. This isn't on the screens, uh, so you can turn in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 16, let's start at uh, verse 21. Uh, verse 21. Jesus teaching his disciples. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day raised to life. Like as Jesus held that up for his disciples to, to, to see and catch a glimpse of, they completely rejected it. That was when Peter was like, pulled Jesus aside, was like, no, this, is, this must not be. And what did Jesus call Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter had the ways of Satan. Peter had the ways of chaos. Peter had the ways of, 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 of evil in mind. What does evil do? It sees, it takes, it grasps, it claims. And Peter was saying, the nation is there for the claiming. We ride to Jerusalem is in victory and we take what is rightfully ours. 
That's what Peter had in mind. He had the ways of the serpent in his mind, the ways of all mankind. And so Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. And he set his face toward Jerusalem. And there would be victory, but the victory would come through his own suffering and death. Victory would come through his own suffering and death. The very unsnaky way, the very non-chaotic way. Suffering and death. See, Jesus gave himself to the agenda of the snake. He would die for the sins of the people who became agents of the snake in bringing chaos, violence, and death into the world. The very people who stood as enemies of God and agents of chaos, those were the ones he came to rescue and save. And he would do it by taking their place in death. Instead of crushing his abusers with violence and self-defense, he gives himself over to them. He gives himself over to death at the hands of the snake agent, the powers of empire, the powers of religion who crushed him. He would be the one who comes and crushes the serpent's head, but that crushing would come as the serpent strikes his heel. A painful, suffering, seemingly fatal blow would lead to victory would lead to victory, freedom, and life. For you see, it was through forgiving the very people who killed him. By forgiving the very people who maligned him and abused him, he unleashes the power of love, of God's love, of God's transforming, powerful, life-giving love is unleashed into the world to bring forgiveness, to bring freedom, and to bring new life to all who believe. And in his resurrection, he would show us the beginning of this new life and hold out for all who would believe that they too, that we too, would know this freedom, forgiveness, and eternal life. All of this power unleashed through the self-sacrifice of the one we've been waiting for. It seems counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? In our own moments of panic, we self-defend, we get bigger, we claim, we cling, we grab, we take. And here was the very son of God, God himself in flesh, who released his life to the powers of chaos, evil, and death. And in doing so, brought forgiveness, freedom, love, and life into the world. He is indeed the snake crusher. The Bible predicts a coming king who will defeat the chaos serpent once and for all. And the gospels reveal to us that Jesus is that king. Jesus is the one who overcame evil by sacrificing himself. He is the one, and the one has come. 
this has really significant implications for our lives. Not just for our eternities, but for our lives here today. Let's talk about these. Uh, what, are, what are three of these implications? We'll call them the big three. Some big three takeaways for us today as we look at what God has revealed in this beginning of Genesis. One of the first things that we take away from this is evil is real. Evil is real. We can try to write it off. We can try to explain it off. We can try to put it over there and not over here. But the fact of the matter is evil is real. And you and I have been wooed and warped by evil. And you and I are agents of chaos when left to our own devices. Evil is real. And once it grabs, it holds on fast. Evil is real. Number two, Jesus has overcome evil, sin, and death. It's already done. Jesus has overcome evil, sin, and death. The snake has been crushed. It cost him the heel strike. But the serpent has been crushed. Jesus has overcome evil, sin, and death. And we get to participate in that victory by faith. Look at number three. By faith, we live in this victory. By faith, we have the justification through the forgiveness of sin, the victory of Jesus, his forgiveness through the cross. When we believe in him, when we put our trust in him for victory, the victory becomes ours. Not just something we see at a distance, but it becomes real in ours. And the tangling cords of evil, sin, and death come uncoiled, and we are brought into freedom, the king's freedom, because Jesus has already overcome evil, sin, and death. And by faith, by trust, by living in trust, we live in his victory. It's actually really interesting. Jesus was getting ready to commission his, some of his disciples to kind of go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. He did this in Luke chapter 10. And he says, and as he was preparing them to go, he said, you have the power to crush the heads of serpents and scorpions as he sent them on their way. Hello. Jesus was going back to Genesis 3 in the hope of what was coming, that there would be a seed of the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of a serpent. Now, little parentheses here. I know that there are some who have taken that passage and made it really weird. They just, they just made it weird, right? So I'm not suggesting that we pull out boxes of snakes just to prove the point. But as we live our lives, Jesus is the snake crusher. But listen, listen, listen. Jesus, by his power and authority, he has made his followers, his people, many snake crushers. That you and I can live in his victory by faith. Not only through justification and forgiveness, but through the way that we live. That you and I are part of spreading that victory around all of creation. How do we do that? How do we step on the heads of serpents and scorpions? We do so by rejecting the way of chaos. Chaos takes, grabs, in order to fulfill my own desires. When we submit our desires to the lordship of Jesus, we step on the head. When we trust him for our provision, when we trust him for our security, when we trust him for our affirmation and love, we become many snake crushers. You and me. When we love our enemies and forgive those who have hurt us, 
we crush the head of the serpent. Evil is real. Jesus has overcome evil, sin, and death. And by faith, you and I can live in his victory. The question becomes, will you? Will you believe him? Will you trust him? Will you walk with him in that victory? Only you can answer that. In a moment, we're going to remember the heel strike, the death of the Son of God. We do it in an act we call communion or the Lord's Supper. It's a time to remember the cost of victory. It was no cheap thing at all. The strike was strong and it looked like death had won. But what we know is that he overcame even death. And so in a moment, our team is going to pass the trays up and down the aisles, take a piece of the cracker and take a cup, if you would, and just hold on to it. We're gonna receive it in just a moment together. But it's a good time to reflect, to let the Lord examine your heart. Uh, you don't need to be a member of Centerpoint Church to celebrate communion with us. You just need to be a part of God's household, that you have trusted him by faith for your forgiveness and freedom. And if you've done that, then come, enjoy the Lord's Supper together. We are his people. It's possible you're here and you have not come to that decision yet. Um, love that you're here, um, but we also don't wanna ask you to do something that's not consistent with where you're at on your journey. You should feel free to let the tray go right on by. Nobody's gonna look at you weird. Um, again, we love that you're here, but don't want to ask for this, like go through religious motions. That's not what we're into, all right? But for those of us who have, who have received his grace, received his forgiveness, um, as a gift of his grace. This is a time for us to remember and to celebrate the gift that he's given us. So again, as the team passes, take this moment to reflect and just hold on to it and I'll be back in a moment and we'll receive it together. Let me pray for us. Father, in these moments, uh, reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us. Uh, we open ourselves up to you to examine us in those places where we have harbored sin and rebellion against you those places where we have tried to satisfy our desires in our own way, in the snaky ways. God, we've done that. So we seek your forgiveness as you show us what those ways are because we want to stand before you pure and righteous by a work of your grace. So do that work in us as we consider your gift, your sacrifice in these moments. Lead us and guide us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Take a little bit to stop and reflect on what God might be saying to you and how you'll respond to him today. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, we are here to serve you. Find us at centerpointnh.org and join us on the journey of living and sharing a life-changing relationship with Jesus.